Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family, of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skilled in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that there were, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Father, what an appropriate song to sing right before the preaching of your word from this particular text. Behold our God, seated on his throne, come, let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. And Father, we are going to see in the book of Daniel a proud and arrogant king named Nebuchadnezzar who ruled over a, the mighty empire of Babylon and made a tragic mistake of thinking that he was more powerful than the God of Israel. But Father, as you did then, you continue to do, you continue to show yourself to be the one true God. 
Father, I have one goal, one desire today, and that is to exalt you, to bring glory to you, to recognize your power, to recognize the grace that has been given to us through Christ. But I cannot do that on my own. I am totally inept, incapable, incompetent, apart from the filling of your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would use me today to bring glory to you and to exalt the Lord Jesus. We ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Uh, the winds of change are blowing and have been blowing for quite some time. It's a powerful wind that has already swept across Europe, quickly has made its way across the Atlantic and has reached our shores. And since reaching our shores, this very powerful wind of change has made a dramatic and not for the better difference in our culture, in our society. And it has made such an impact, one has to wonder if things will ever be like they were. And the winds of change that I'm referring to are the winds of secularism. Our culture, day by day, year by year, becomes increasingly more and more secular. And the secular worldview is a worldview, please listen carefully, that has absolutely no room for God. Those who hold to this worldview want to remove God from his rightful place. They want to remove him from the center. And you'll never guess who they want to place at the center. Themselves. Themselves. A pure secular wor worldview is atheistic and believes that God is nothing more than a creation of human imagination. The secular worldview believes only in the material world. It believes only in what it can touch, what it can see, what it can feel, what it can study, and ultimately what it can prove. So obviously that leaves zero room for anything spiritual in nature. So it has successfully accomplished the creation of a mindset in our culture where there is no such thing as absolute truth, that all truth is considered to be relative, and if you don't believe that, just look at the ongoing debate over the abomination known as abortion. Let me, give, let me read you a quote that I find truly terrifying, and, and I, 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 I try not to give myself to hyperbole very often. I do find this chilling, a chilling statement from the Humanist Manifesto 2. They say, we affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Big red flag. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
And that's where you want to derive your moral values from. He goes on to say ethics is autonomous. You know what that means? Independent. And situational. Needing not theological or ideological sanctions. In other words, we don't need input from anybody else but ourselves. Ethics stems from human need and interest. It's truly terrifying when you think about it. That this is the worldview that though they may not have read these words, but it's the worldview, it's the philosophy that many have bought into. So what's going on here? Well, they want to completely deny God as creator. Right? That's why evolution continues to make inroads. Unfortunately and sadly, even in the church in some ways. If we can remove God as creator, guess what we can then do without any fear, they think. If God is not the creator, then guess what? God is not the lawgiver. God is not the judge. God is not the standard. God does not set the standard of morality. God does not set the standard of right and wrong. The Ten Commandments are nothing more than rubbish. So get rid of God as creator, and therefore we can get rid of God as judge, and therefore we are the judge of what is right and wrong, and therefore we don't have to fear any consequences of our actions. We can do what we want to do. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what the book of Judges describes. Every man did that which was what? Right in his own eyes. So we have to think about this. What are the implications for us as Christians? Admittedly, to be a Christian in a fallen world has never been easy. And I believe it will always be difficult. And I also believe that it may become increasingly so much quicker than we would like to believe. So what's the solution? What's the solution? Do we need to come up with some strategies and some techniques in order to ensure our survival in a culture that is hostile to those who follow Christ? Oh, I know, I know. Let's form some political action committees. Let's pay some more lobbyists and uh, let's try and, and make sure that we retain all of our rights. You say, is that always bad? Not always bad, but if that's where you're putting your trust, you're trusting in a fool's errand. I live through the moral majority. You know what it accomplished? It never made things better. In fact, I think it made things worse. See? I don't believe we, that's where we need to put the majority of our efforts. I do believe that what we need is taught right here in the book of Daniel. So what does the book of Daniel teach us? Well, among the many things that Daniel teaches us is that despite all appearances... God will not abandon his people. You need to keep that in mind. Despite all appearances, God will not abandon his people. The book of Daniel teaches us, among many things, that despite the appearances, despite what we see going on around us, God is in control at all times. God has been in control in the past God is still in control today, and God will be in control of the future. Despite what we may see going on around us, God is still in control.
Well, the book of Daniel, just by just a very brief background, you could almost describe it as two books in one. It has 12 chapters. The first six chapters are really history. They record events from the life of Daniel and his companions. They record events in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and also as well as Belshazzar. The second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, record Daniel's visions of the future. So it's a book of history, but it's also a book of prophecy. So you may not realize that the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, you know, he correctly predicted the precise time that Jesus would come. Daniel tells ahead of time the upcoming history of the world from the time that he lived, the time of Nebuchadnezzar, right up to what is known as the Christian era. But Daniel also foretells the rise and fall of the Medes and the Persians, the rise and fall of Alexander the Great and the coming mighty Roman Empire. And there's also events in there that Daniel foretells that were far removed from his lifetime. Now, with a book such as this, you can imagine that it has had its fair share of criticism. It's authenticity, it's historicity, it's authorship, the date that it has been written. All of these things have come under attack. Should we be concerned about this as Christians? Absolutely not. All of those things are pointless and baseless. Why? Because of verse 1. Look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. History tells us that Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, attacked Judah on three separate occasions. The first time was in 605 B.C. The second time occurred, I believe it was uh, uh, 597 B.C. On his second attack against Judah, against Jerusalem, that is when he succeeded in capturing Jehoiakim, leading him away captive, though he did return for a while. And that's, this was also the time when Daniel and his uh, companions were carried away, and also the prophet Ezekiel at this time. There was one third and final attack against the city of Jerusalem, against Judah, and that was in 586 B.C. And that's when the city was destroyed, and the majority of the city's citizens were deported to Babylon, and included in that uh, deportation was the prophet Jeremiah. So verse 1 really sets the tone for what follows in the rest of the book. What we have here is a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who is truly a prideful and arrogant man because he exalts not only himself but also the false gods of Babylon over and above and against the one true God of Israel. Let me show you just how arrogant he was. Go to Daniel chapter 4 verse 30. In Daniel chapter 4, we have the record here where Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his royal palace. And as he's walking out on the roof, he's surveying his kingdom, and he says these words, Is not this great Babylon, now look at this guy, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. You see what he's doing? He's taking all the credit for it. This is what I have done. This is my great Babylon. I've built this, my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. He takes all the credit. 
So we have to ask ourselves, who was sovereign? Nebuchadnezzar and the false gods of the Babylonians or the one true God of Israel? Well, we know the answer, but it had to be proven in Nebuchadnezzar. Commentator uh, Gleason Archer writes this, The principal theological emphasis in Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh, the God of Israel. At a time when it seemed to all the world that his cause was lost and that the gods of the heathen had triumphed, causing his temple to be burned to the ground, it pleased the Lord strikingly and unmistakably to display his omnipotence. The theme running through the whole book is that the fortunes of kings and the affairs of men are subject to God's decrees and that he is able to accomplish his will despite the most determined opposition of the mightiest potentates on earth. Again, from outward appearances, it looks like God has lost. God's people have lost. That God has let them down. That God has abandoned them. Here they are in exile in a strange land. They're, they have been given into the hands of their enemies. But again, keep in mind, appearances are deceiving. And that's the first lesson we learned from the book of Daniel. Outward appearances do not always reflect reality. As Christians, we must be careful about drawing conclusions based upon appearances, based upon what we see going on around us. I mean, let's be honest. Let's, let's survey our society. Let's survey our culture. At times, it seems like Christianity is losing out. Fewer and fewer people are going to church. The report came out this week about the Southern Baptists and the pretty precipitous decline that they have had in all of their numbers. Church membership as a whole was way down, I think, 30% since the 1970s and has accelerated since the 1990s. But what do we see? We see the rise of other, quote-unquote, religions. So from all outward appearances, it would appear that what? That we're losing. That we're losing. But wait a minute. I heard a cathedral quartet sing one time. I read the back of the book and we win. Well, you know what? You don't have to wait to the back of the book. It's all over the book. Okay? It's all over the book. It may appear that we're losing. It may appear that God is not in control. But Daniel teaches us that God is in control. God was in control then, and God is in control now. See, we must always remember that despite what we see or feel, God is sovereign. He is in absolute control. And by the way, the sovereignty of God is not a doctrine given to baffle you or to cause confusion in your life. It is a doctrine given to you to bring comfort to you. I've said this before of Edwards. And I went and found the exact quote. Jonathan Edwards said, The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Now, let me go back. He says, the doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant and bright. How could it very often appear that way? You know how? He thought about it. He thought about it. It wasn't something he read about in a book and said, oh, that's nice, and went on his way. No, he constantly thought about this. And it brought him what? It brought him comfort. And as the proud, arrogant Nebuchadnezzar would experience very shortly the reality of God's suffering, he was going to experience the reality of God's sovereignty in a very humbling 
and powerful way. But as of this moment here, as the book of Daniel opens, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar has the upper hand and that he has got it over on the people of God. Say, why would you say that? Because he was successful in his conquest of Jehoiakim in the city of Jerusalem. But he never stopped. I, I wonder, let me rephrase that. I wonder, did he ever stop and ask himself, why am I so successful? Now, if he had asked himself that question, I think I know what the answer would have been. He would have said, you know why I'm so successful? Because I'm me. Because I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the great king of Babylon. Look at me. Look at what I've, bought, what I've built. Look at my majesty. Look at my glory. See? But notice carefully what verse 2 says. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Why was Nebuchadnezzar successful in conquering the land of Judah? There's only one reason. You know what that reason is? God allowed him to. It was part of God's design. It was part of God's plan. That's why he was able to conquer the land. See, God was more than capable of turning back Nebuchadnezzar if he wanted to. For instance, you remember the story about Hezekiah? When he was king and the Rabshakeh came from the Assyrians? You remember this story? And the Rabshakeh spoke in the native tongue of the Jewish people. And in essence, what he said was, hey, you people are done for. You think your God is going to save you? What about the, and he mentions all these other false gods. What about them? Hey, they thought their gods would save them. You know what? They're our servants now. They're our slaves. We have conquered them. And what happened? Hezekiah went and prayed. And they, they get up the next morning. And what do they find dead in the camp of the Assyrians? Not a few. A hundred and eighty 5,000 dead Assyrians. The people of Judah never lifted a hand to them. How did that happen? The Holy One of Israel. He was in control. Listen, if he wanted to turn back Nebuchadnezzar, he could have done it easily. See? God was the one who was in control. God was the one who was moving the pieces and the players around. And it makes me wonder, Nebuchadnezzar, how could you be so proud? Don't you realize you're simply a pawn of God? And we see this throughout chapter 1. So in, in verse 2, the Lord gave. Look at verse 9. <coughs> and God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Then in verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them. Learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Yes, God's people were in exile. Yes, they had been removed from their homeland. Many of them had been separated from their families. But God was still in control. And Daniel, along with the rest of the people in exile, would learn 
that exile did not mean that God had abandoned them or that he had stopped working on their behalf. Say, how do we know this? Well, let me give you just a few things that God did for them while they were in exile. For instance, while they were in exile, God gave Daniel the interpretations of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. While they were in exile, God protected Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah when they were thrown into the fiery furnace. While they were in exile, God protected Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den. And while they were in exile, that was a time when God gave Daniel the visions of the future and the coming of God's kingdom. See, we may be in exile, we may be strangers in a foreign land, but that does not mean that God is not at work. You think about some of the events, some of the miracles that take place in Daniel, they rank right up there with the greatest in Scripture. How, do you be th- how can you be thrown into a fiery furnace and you come out unharmed, unsinged? How do you go down into a den of hungry lions? And you're an old man by this point. You're probably not going to fend off too many of them, if any of them. And you make it through the night. How do you explain this? Because God was at work. Even in exile, even in Babylon, God is at work. God never abandons his people. He never ceases to work on behalf of his people. If you are his, write this down, circle it, star it, highlight it. If you are his, he will never ever abandon you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. I don't think anybody really looks forward to the prospect of death. But believer, we have nothing to fear. I believe with all of my heart that Christ will be so near and sweet to us in death. Lesson two from Daniel. God is faithful. In particular, God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word. You and I may have some questions as to why the people of Judah ended up in Israel. I mean in exile, excuse me. But to the people of Israel and the people of Judah, it shouldn't have been a shock and it shouldn't have been surprising to them at all. Why? Because God had made it clear to the people, God had made it clear to the entire nation that if they disobeyed him, if they violated the terms of the covenant that he made with them, then they would, what, suffer the consequences of their disobedience. They were not in exile. Listen, they were not in exile because Nebuchadnezzar was a megalomaniac and they were just a part of his plan for world domination. He didn't draw up a list and say, you know what, I got to conquer Judah, then I'll move on and before long I will have the world in my pocket. No, no, that's not while they were, they were in exile. God gave his people into the hands of their enemies. So why? Because they had violated the terms of the covenant. They had violated the terms of the covenant spelled out in Leviticus chapter 26. If they had kept the terms of the covenant in Leviticus 26, they would have experienced God's favor and God's blessing. But likewise, if they failed to keep his covenant, if they violated the terms of his covenant, God said he would 
punish them for their sin. For instance, God said that you can plant all the seed that you want, but you will sow it in vain. God said, if you continue to disobey me, I'll turn the heavens to iron and the earth to bronze. God said, if you continue to disobey me, if you refuse to repent, he said in verse 33, and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Then in verse 29, God said, and those of you who are left shall, be, shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. That was a general prophecy, if you will, of what would happen to God's people if they failed to keep the terms of the covenant. But there's also a very specific prophecy that we need to pay attention to. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter uh, 20? 2 Kings chapter 20. And we are going to read verses 12 through 19. 2 Kings 20, verses 12 through 19. At that time, Merodach Baladin, if you're looking for a baby name, there you go. <laughs> At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them. <coughs> Excuse me. And he showed them. Now, now pay attention to what Hezekiah does here. He showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory. Not smart. All that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, Hey, they have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses I did not show them. Then Hezekiah, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now this response to me is absolutely mind-boggling. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Ah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days, I don't care what happens in the future. Hezekiah, we're talking about your sons and your grandsons. People that should be near and dear to your heart and you don't care? Ah, hey, as long as I escape unscathed, what's the big deal? So, so why did Hezekiah's actions upset Isaiah? I mean, after all, after all, Hezekiah was obviously proud of his accomplishments. He was proud of the prosperity of his country. And when the king of Babylon sent this delegation, the king bearing gifts, here's what Hezekiah failed to realize. 
Merodach Baladan wasn't coming just to make friends. He was coming to seek Hezekiah's resources in order to form an alliance against the Assyrians. And when Hezekiah opened up and showed him everything that he had, that was a signal, whether Hezekiah knew it or not, that was a signal to the king of Babylon, hey, this guy's receptive. This guy has the resources that I need. This is somebody that we can form an alliance with. This is somebody that we can work with. You say, well, what's the problem? Everybody needs a little help from their friends every once in a while, not God's people. Do you realize that just one chapter earlier, it was God, not Merodach Baladan, who had saved Hezekiah from Sennacherib and the Assyrians? One chapter earlier. But here he is placing his trust in a political alliance rather than trusting in the Lord. I had to, as I wrote that statement, I thought to myself, that sounds eerily familiar. Isn't that what the church would like to do today? We'd like to create stronger political alliances like that will somehow protect us. Listen, folks, I don't mean to scare you and I don't mean to be uh, uh, Johnny Downtrodden here, but listen, all we need is God. God will look out for his people. God will not abandon his people. A politician, this may be as a shock to some of you, a politician will turn on you as soon as they get the chance. See? See, God was faithful to his word. You know what happened? Hezekiah's treasure and as well as some of his best and brightest, ended up in Babylon. You see the tragedy, the folly, the utter insanity of not trusting in the Lord. And by the way, the faithfulness of God is a two-edged sword. He is faithful in judgment, and he's faithful in blessing. So what does Daniel teach us? He teaches us, first of all, that appearances can be deceiving. Let me ask you a very important question. Please listen. Are you a Christian or do you simply appear to be a Christian? You know the lingo. You know the terms. You know the service times. You dip in and out of scripture every once in a while. You know who to call brother. You know when to say praise the Lord. You give a pittance every once in a while to the church and think that you've done something great. You have the appearance of being a Christian, but maybe you're not a Christian. So are you trying to get me to doubt my salvation? If need so, yes. 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 See? Appearances can be deceiving. Has the Holy Spirit shown you 
that you have broken God's law? Has the Holy Spirit convinced you that you are a sinner in desperate need of salvation? Quit thinking of somebody else. Think about yourself. Has that happened in your life? Or do you still think you're a pretty good person? Well, Daniel also teaches that God is faithful to his word. And again, this is both a positive and negative. And it's a negative for those who appear to be Christians but really aren't. You know why? If you think that you're a Christian, but you're not, God will be faithful to his word. And if you continue to reject Christ, that means that you will hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. And you're going to go to the place reserved for the devil and his fallen angels. But the good news is, God's faithfulness to his word means that if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, what? You will be saved. You will be saved. Well, let's pray. Father, as we will see next week, Daniel was probably... 14, 15, 16 years of age, along with his companions. And I'm sure there must have been some fear in their lives, some trepidation about the future. But they understood that despite what was happening to them at the moment, that you were still in control that you had not abandoned them. You had not forsaken them. And Lord, for those of us who are living in these last days, days when our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to those who profess faith in Christ, who want to call us narrow-minded and bigoted, may we remember that despite outward appearances, you are still in control. And may we remember that you are faithful to your word, that you are always at work. May we never, ever forget that. Father, I don't know the spiritual condition of the people that are, all the people that are here this morning, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to know. Only you do. And Father, may your spirit reveal to each and every person the reality of their standing with you. We can try and delude ourselves. We can try and convince ourselves. But Father, you will be faithful to your word in judgment and in blessing. Oh, Father, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the lost, bring them to Christ today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.